0: So everyone everyone has an outline. Should say on the top uh, rediscovering, and Restoring Biblical Christianity Series uh, GCF 2019 to 2023 version. I'm hoping to finish by 2023 December. Uh, should say Emphasis 11 Effective Prayer with Fasting Catalyst of Incitation, right? And then it should say 11, emphasis 11 AD. Um, Josiah, do we have the, we, at one point, we were putting the 15 titles on the board. Do we have ability to do that? Good. So if you look at these, uh, what what our basic thesis in Grace Christian Fellowship is, is that um, what became known as Bible-believing Christianity uh Developed in the 19th century, Uh, it gave birth to the missionary movements uh, that came out of mostly uh, the United Kingdom, uh, Great Britain, and the United States, and therefore uh, American and English uh, evangelical Christianity has greatly shaped uh, evangelical Christianity worldwide if you uh go to uh nigeria if you go to kenya if you go to india you're going to find uh a a type of evangelical christianity that is very much like ours and uh so that's that's helpful to know uh because as we get ready to uh uh you know we are in the building a team already in in, uh, in India, mostly in Bangalore and Hyderabad and working with good folks like David Yamarte and his family. Uh, and uh, much of the evangelical Christianity there is very similar to ours in, uh, in all the things that it all the ingredients that it tends to be missing, all the emphasis that it tends to have and really even uh, in, in the historical development of the ideas and so forth. So uh, that, that's kind of helpful. And so what, uh, you know, Catherine and I have been involved in, we started with a group of people in the 1970s, before many of you were born, uh, with the idea that uh, the biblical-based Christianity of of America is not quite as biblical as we think it is, and there are many ingredients that need to be rediscovered, and so there's kind of... And the reason we have the words rediscovering and restoring is because there's a very, very, very important need to do both those things, We can't restore something that we don't understand. You know, um, you can't find a missing ingredient if you don't know that you're missing the ingredient and if you're not looking for missing ingredients. Uh, Occasionally, you stumble upon something you're not looking for. Many, many, many years ago, my wife was gardening and lost her engagement ring And uh, I believe it was your mother felt so bad for you that she bought her, Catherine, an identical one. Uh, And then uh, a year or two later, I was standing on our back deck, looking over the deck down into the flowers below, and all of a sudden I saw this ring sitting there. And uh, now she has two. (laughs) So... But occasionally you discover something you weren't looking for. I wasn't particularly looking for anything. I was just looking to uh, enjoy the flowers. I like flowers a lot. So, and I discovered a platinum ring with uh, with a diamond in it. So, but I wasn't, you know. So that can happen. You can you can find something you're not looking for, but Uh, most of the time, uh, the finding goes a lot better if you first start with the idea that we're missing some things and we need to figure out what we're missing. And so this series, rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity, is basically based on the the things that uh, Catherine and I and many of the people we've been associated with since uh, 1971 or so uh, have been endeavoring to rediscover and 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 rebuild in, into uh, uh, the church uh, since the 70s, and many of the things that we do well now, we did poorly uh, in the 70s and even on into the 80s. Um, and there are certainly a lot of things that we, by the grace of God, could hope hope to do better in. So on, on the back, what we have going through is uh, 1 through 5, then 6 through 10, then 11 through 15, what the emphases are. And uh, we are actually, in, the, in how we're teaching this series, we're on emphasis 5, restoring the whole Bible as the counsel of God. But I jumped forward to uh, emphasis 11, because it seems like the Lord's called us into a season of seeking his presence with both prayer and fasting so if you notice uh let's start with that the title effective prayer with fasting catalyst to visitation so uh i probably should have sydney come up and share on this uh because he probably knows more about it than me but uh at least the word catalyst um i've heard of it <laughs> but uh, uh i'll try to define catalyst as best i can when we get that far But I want to start with the word effective. Do you know you can be more or less effective at lots of things? I remember, uh, and sometimes when people evaluate whether they're effective at this or that, their evaluations are quite wrong. One of the reasons we need Christian community is other people can help us see ourselves better than we can see ourselves without their help. So, um, in fact, uh, as I was saying that, I looked up and saw a certain lady in our church that I know who once told me uh, they, she was raised by a homeschooling family and was homeschooled, and she once told me she wasn't a very good reader, nor did she uh, understand, you know, when she was reading very well and so forth. And I came to discover that uh, she's obviously one of the most uh, insightful readers, in, in, that, in, at least that I've known. Uh, and so, uh, and uh, of course, we never want to disrespect someone's opinions or thoughts, but sometimes respectfully we need to help them say, well, hey, the truth is that's, not a problem, this is a problem, (laughs) and so forth. So, uh, you know, one of the great advantages of Christian community is if you're willing to, you can let uh, the people in your life help you see yourself better. And uh, there's certain things about yourself you'll probably never understand or see without someone else helping you see them. So in terms of prayer, you, you know, it's not just a matter of how long you pray. I noticed that we've always had quite an emphasis. I was, I was by the grace of God, brought into a Christian fellowship that was uh, in Bowling Green, Ohio. It was called the Fellowship. And it was not uncommon for a lot of the core leaders to read their Bibles three to eight hours a day. And uh, there was always a lot of emphasis on studying the scriptures in, in that particular group. Um, but one of the things that, by the grace of God, I, God helped me learn and understand better over time was it's not just a matter of calling people to read their Bibles more. You hear that a lot. I need to read my Bible more. But you know what you need to do more than you need to read your Bible more? You need to read your Bible more effectively. So you need God to help you have the right hermeneutics, and uh, we avoid big words, but we shouldn't. Big words, if they're the right words, are some you know, that should be something we're learning. In, uh, we say we follow the Bible. So in 1 Corinthians chapter two, Paul says that we do speak wisdom among the mature, but a wisdom not of this age. And then he says that when we're speaking this spiritual wisdom, we speak uh, using spiritual words. So if you any subject you're going to learn in life, whether you're going to learn psychology or first aid or uh, how to cook spaghetti sauce, uh, there's a vocabulary to learn. And uh, there's a term called jargon. And every, every academic discipline, and uh, I remember when I was teaching at Sinclair, uh, I actually uh, would ask my, I taught for four years uh, history and humanities classes at Sinclair, and I would always ask my class, uh, and, uh, how many people have ever taken a class in the academic discipline of logic and logical thinking or tr- true and false reasoning, learning ideas like uh, fallacies and what the different types of fallacies are called and how they're structured and so forth. And uh, what was kind of fun- funny at one time was uh, someone raised their hand and said, what's an academic discipline mean? <laughs> and I thought, okay, we well, have to go back a little bit more basic to ask this question here. And um, I always thought it was kind of interesting because you, there's a lot of people who uh, who criticize um, the homeschoolers for a number of reasons. But... Um, I always had one or two students in in the class that were still in high school, and there was a program, uh, it's David Furlow back there, Uh, there was a program they used to call Post-Secondary Education Options. What do they call it today, David? College Credit Plus, plus, where you can take uh, college classes uh, at the state's expense if you're taking them while you're still in high school. And uh, part of the reason that I chose to have my kids go to Dominion Academy was uh, we found that almost every, every public and private uh, high school uh, that we were familiar with tried to hide the fact that that program existed from the students, while uh, Dominion Academy sort of uh, emphasized it. And so, you know, a couple of my kids were able to finish their associate's degrees by the time they graduated from high school and and, uh, and have the government pay for it. So that's nice. Oh, you can get the government to pay for it. It's called entitlement. Uh, what's that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's the... That. You know, uh, I always get a kick out of uh, whenever uh, fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen-year-olds, whenever they get their first job and get their first paycheck, and they notice the the big difference between gross and net, <laughs> and they're like, "What happened? <laughs> I was robbed." <laughs> One of our founding fathers actually said, the art of taxation is the art of getting the most feathers from the goose with the least amount of squawking. It's amazing that people vote for politicians that actually have promised to raise your taxes. What are you thinking? Um, all right, so effective is something, you can be more or less effective at reading And guess what? You can be more or less effective at prayer, and the issue isn't how much time you spend praying. The issue is, do the prayers get answered in a favorable way? And there really are lots of things you can do to change that, how effective your praying is. Lots. And so we are, uh, when we deal with this uh, section on prayer and fasting, I don't just want to teach you what prayer is. I want you to, to, uh, to become good at it. Now, uh, the word catalyst to visitation, let's talk about what a visitation is. We've had a little bit of visitation now and again at Grace Christian Fellowship. Generally, when there's a time of visitation, there's an increased sense of the presence of God, uh, especially in times of worship and so forth, that many individuals and sometimes the whole group can discern. Do you know God is omnipresent? What does that mean? That means he's everywhere. And he's everywhere in a way that, that we finite individuals never could be. Uh, many of us have experienced being one place physically and maybe emotionally or mentally we were somewhere else. <laughs> uh, every student experiences that. But, <laughs> but, um, and, um, but one of the things you need to understand about God's omnipresence is if you, if you were to take a substance like peanut butter... And uh, you could put peanut butter here, you could put peanut butter there, but you're spreading it out and there's gonna be less peanut butter. But one of the most important things about God's omnipresence is God is completely, fully present everywhere. So when Jesus says, well, if two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst, God in his full attention in full glory, in full power, is in thousands of Christian meetings right now. Having no trouble understanding the prayers and the praises of all of his people everywhere in every type of language, many of which uh, certainly none of us know. So that's, that's really important to understand. So visitation is, is a, a thing that happens when we have an increased uh, sense of God's presence in an ongoing way, and it's a much better word, a more important word than revival. As you read the Psalms and so forth, you'll, you'll hear, you know, often the psalmists will say, revive us, O Lord, and you hear a lot of Christians talking about revival but revival is more of a temporary visitation, uh, somewhat like uh, roller coasters have their highs and lows. And what God's desire is, is not just that, you would, that we would be revived. I guess if you need, if you're not breathing or whatever, and uh, you know, I, my youngest daughter had an experience just a week or two ago where uh, the, the man who lives across the hall from them, whom they were f- they were friendly with, uh, this couple. and um, But he was a drug addict, and he overdosed. And she's trained in CPR and so forth. So she was, uh, you know, called upon to uh, try to revive him while they were waiting for the ambulance and so forth. And she was unsuccessful in her attempt, and the man died. And I told her, this is... Uh, a kind of traumatic experience that will probably take you many years to get over Uh, because I've had similar experiences. So um, revival is not, God is not just desiring to quicken us. All of us, uh, before we know Christ, before he dwells in our spirit and our heart, all of us are what the Bible calls spiritually dead. But dead, spiritually dead, is not that your spirit doesn't exist. Spiritually dead is that your spirit is not conscious of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Right? So many theologians uh, speculate, and I would agree with this, the the absent the essence of hell is the absence of being able to discern the presence of God forever and ever and ever who uh who was over the other night uh, uh watched a movie with me late late the other night uh, Some Jane and someone else on oh, Liz right Liz house and Jane. Jane were over and then and uh golda and we watched uh that great classic edifying movie called uh, oh what's it called sandlot, sandlot. sandlot. uh was my, my kid's favorite when they were growing up, and uh there's that one scene where they're they're going forever for, for, forever uh You know, forever is not just a long, 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 long time. I love the song Amazing Grace, but I'm always quick to point out that the second or third verse that says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, with no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. is actually bad theology. Because uh, heaven is outside and above time. It's not just a long, long, long time. It's, it's in a realm that time doesn't exist. God created time as part of creating humanity and part of his redemptive purposes for us. And we dwell in a, in a uh, situation with time, and we're going to talk about days as an important unit of time. We need units of time. But when you touch the presence of God in worship, the first thing you should notice is, as Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity in man's heart. You can actually experience and sense eternity. And uh, eternity uh, is not a long, long, long time. Eternity is outside of time looking back in, you might say. And a lot of you know that my... Uh, coming to Christ when I was 17 was because I had started getting into the uh, Eastern mystical soul travel uh, side of psychedelic drugs. And uh, and my spirit uh, left my body and descended into hell. And I didn't experience the, the, the most horrifying thing about the whole thing was this sense that it is. That that it's not just a long, long time, that it's just a state of being. And when you're in the spirit of God, you should actually be able to, uh, visitation includes being able to sense eternity better. And part of the outworking of that is you should be more eternally minded in the way you make decisions and you think. I've always been grateful that God prophetically gave me the name Gregory because Gregory wasn't a name until the second century. It's a common New Testament word that means to rise from the dead, to awaken, and it also means to be circumspect or, prudent. Uh, um, you know, uh, it, it kind of means to be a person who, who thinks... Uh, about the long-term consequences uh, more, and the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the beginning of the fear of God is to learn is to begin to think eternally. If you never noticed, um, little kids when they scrape their knee, the reason they overreact, the reason people people who are that we consider emotionally immature or whatever overreact. Is they, is they're lacking, whatever area you're emotionally immature in, it's because you're lacking perspective and like you, like when you're, you know, a rough and tumble young man like a a Daniel Gray or whatever, you've scraped your knee a hundred times already and so you begin to understand this is going to pass and then so eventually it's no big deal because you begin to, and even with emotional problems, um people who haven't actually stayed in the battle, so to speak, and really opened everything up and got all the issues out and got them, got it all dealt with and came to a point of resolve and clarity often lack perspective because you have to do that a bunch of times before you begin to understand uh, this is just an emotional problem that we can resolve and we can work out. But you can't resolve it or work it out just by going oh I forgive you and you forgive me and let's not talk about it you have to really kind of get the issues out on the table and dismantle them and put them all back together right and so forth all right so catalyst a catalyst is some again Sydney's probably better than me at this but a catalyst is a substance that affects a change in other substances And so what we're saying here is that prayer, uh, I believe there's five primary types of prayer. One is reading God's word, because prayer is communication. And the primary way God communicates with us is through the scriptures. So when you get to a point where you're not just reading the scripture academically, but you're reading it to hear the Lord, then you're starting to experience prayer reading the scriptures is a type of prayer. Worship is a type of prayer, especially when it gets beyond just singing songs and we're having intimate communion with the Lord. And when we uh, have that corporately, so that, that, you know, the reason why it, one of the things that makes worship harder in our day and age is because people come in 10 minutes late and 15 minutes late and leave to go to the bathroom and go off to cook the Sunday lunch and whatever, and and, uh, for worship to be what God intends it to be, everyone has to take the journey into the presence of God together. That's why Jesus uh, exhorts us in Matthew 6 to to get our relationship issues dealt with ahead of time, because we have to be in a certain degree of peace and right relationship and harmony to really enjoy uh, what God wants us to enjoy. God actually wants to bless you in worship. He wants you to enjoy worship. So, uh, prayer, I, scripture reading, worship. Then there's what's called intercessory prayer. An in intercessory prayer is when you stand in the gap. Intercession means that you take a go-between position. Like, you know, uh, every kid knows how to do this with their parents. Like, God, uh, you know, the parents are a little bit mad. I'll talk to them first. <laughs> you know, because maybe they're uh, going to go easier on me than on you or whatever. So intercession is, is uh, when we... Uh, Intercession is a a thing that every Christian is called to do. It's amazing that, you know, like there are probably the majority of Christians today could not give a very biblical definition of intercession, yet you're called to do it every day. (laughs) That's a little bit like having a driver's license and you can't pass that beginning test you take to get the temp. That's That's unfortunately the state of the church today. But intercession is a type of prayer that you're called to as a Christian. It's part, every Christian is called is a priest before God. Priest Roseanne is sitting right there. And Priest Roseanne uh, stands between God and his wrath for many people when she seeks God. That's why uh, 1 John, and I believe it's in Hebrews, uh, speak of the fact that Christ always lives to intercede for us. Because if you're anything, you know, like John Bradbury or myself, we're always screwing up. And when I screw up and when John Bradbury screws up, Jesus is actually standing b- between the Father and me, and he's saying, I got, the, I already covered that. Otherwise, I would uh, be wiped out. If I tried to worship the Lord, he would kill me. i go on the basis of Christ having gone before me, or else I wouldn't be allowed to go. And so an intercessor uh, always stands between God and the people that are being prayed for, and the uh, part of our intercession is to remind the Lord of the accomplishments of Christ on our behalf. And an intercessor always reminds God of his promises and his covenants and brings the mercy of God into a situation. That's why uh, Moses is able to say, "If God, if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. I don't know about you, but I've been to enough meetings that I don't want to go to another meeting necessarily. But if God's going to be there, then I want to go to the meeting. You know, I I feel very blessed to be called to be a member of this church because I'm regularly and often in meetings where... Uh, One of the two Sams, of course, we have four, first, second, third, and fourth Samuel. See, the Bible only has two Samuels, but we have four. But uh, the, and uh, one of the two Samuels, or Christiana, or Deanna, has picked out a bunch of songs, and I'm handed a bunch of uh, sheets, because I I like, uh, what do you call them, song sheets. And, or they're up on the board, and, uh, you know, Often there are certain songs they start singing and playing and I can't even sing the song or whatever because I cry too much and I just have to kind of enjoy the song because I can't actually sing the words out loud because they're just too amazing. I'm always amazed at some of the wonderful worship songs that are written today. Um, We surely live in a very blessed time to have been put on this earth. So uh, intercession is a type of prayer that we'll look at more deeply later in this series. Spiritual warfare is a type of prayer. You know, you were born into a battle and there's all kind of missiles and all kind of things going off and you don't get to take a break from the battle, ever. Don't you ever have that thought like, I'd really like to just step outside of spiritual warfare for, you know, like a couple hours. Right, Jerry Do feel it? I, I, you know, I've actually had people tell me they're having that thought, and I go, yeah, I get it. <laughs> but you, you don't get to take any time off ever. You're always in the battle. There's never a moment off. In war, you know, uh, I had an uncle, my dear uncle Adolf, who I love dearly, and he's been gone to be with the Lord for many years, but he was uh, in a foxhole in World War II in Europe, uh, in France and um, he was with all the guys that he had trained with and, and of course they, if any you know some of you are military or, and some of you know enough about the military to know that there's a kind of family that that they're experiencing having you know fought battles together having gone through all their training uh, all that stuff especially at a uh, you know World War II is one of the clearest wars that we, that we justly should have been involved in, you know, there's a lot of wars that we've been involved in that are quite questionable about whether we should have been involved, that one's not so much uh, but he happened to be in a foxhole that some American tanks thought was full of Germans and bombed it and everyone else died except him and, you know, one of his closest friends died in his arms. And 30 years later, if you'd go up behind him and say boo or whatever, he would, he would like jump. He, he never got over that. And so, warfare is a very, very real thing. And it's a part of the Christian life that's every day. Ephesians 6 10 through 20 is what you would call the locus classicus the locus classicus is an idea that there's usually one or two scriptures that speak of a particular subject the most directly the most clearly if you want to learn about spiritual warfare start with reading ephesians six ten through 20 and that include t- tells you how to start putting on your armor And then uh, fifthly, uh, prayers with petitions that should also be accompanied with thanksgivings. That's the fifth type of prayer. So again, scripture reading, worship, intercession, spiritual warfare, and petitions with thanksgivings. Those are five types of prayer that every Christian should be doing every day. Because prayer has to be two-way communication. If you're not hearing back from God, you're not praying. You know, one of the things I learned to do, because by the grace of God, sometimes I'm a pretty good administrator. Not actually, I just have one good administrative principle. Put the right person in charge. (laughs) Don't give a job to someone who's not the right person for it. Always find the right person. And then you don't have to be too involved in it after that. And So do well at selecting who you're going to delegate it to. And one of the things that I always do is I always say, repeat that back to me so I'm sure that they got the instructions right. If they can't tell you what you said, then you didn't communicate. Sometimes we think we've done a really good job of communication, and uh, Lily Gray wasn't paying attention at all. <laughs> she was thinking about what's for dinner, or whatever, something, or you know. And we we all been there. We all do that. And so, like one of the things you always do is have the person state it back to you to see if they got it. Prayer has to be two ways. All right, that was all no extra charge. You don't have to pay extra for that. Um, We're almost out of time again. These meetings are too short. I get up here too late. Um, So if you look at your outline, Roman numeral one is what we covered in the three previous messages. We're not gonna go back over any of that. And Roman numeral two is also in that category. Uh, today, what I had hoped to get into, and I guess I will get into it a little bit, and we'll have to split this up, is I was going to try to go through the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer has 10 subjects, you might say. 10 um, categories, or 10, uh, I don't know what's a good, be- better word than parameters, 10 emphases. And the Lord's Prayer was never meant to be something that we just recite, although I would uh, encourage you that the Lord's Prayer is easy to memorize and you should have it memorized. But the Lord's Prayer should guide you as to how you're praying. Follow its format. Now, now, In the outline, you'll notice there's some red print and some black print, and some of the black print is underlined, and and some of it's underlined in bold. The underlined parts are my emphasis. I'm just trying to emphasize a phrase and make you stop and think about it a little bit more. In other words, the underlined parts are not in your Bible as underlined. The red parts are the uh, words that Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer gives that Luke does not. Luke gives a much more abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer than Matthew does. So I interposed them over each other, and I had uh, we we were we made a slide for that, so hopefully we can get that up there too. Yeah, so can uh so uh, maybe we could get verse one and two out of it if we could. I don't know if you could do that, but uh, or start in the middle where it says "Our Father." But the red the red is Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer. The white lettering is is Luke's. So all Luke and Matthew are very similar in their in their uh, in this episode. So let's start with this part of it. And I, that I don't know how far we're going to get today. I don't know if we can stall the kids for a little while or not. If we can, let's do that. Um and we will have to work we should work Christiana hey, Christian and non, and non-vesh, make sure it's on the uh leaders meeting agenda we we really got to get the meeting organized a little better so I have a little more time than this um cuz there wasn't enough time to really have said anything today by the time I got up here so um and we're we're trying not to go past 12 but we're we're either going to have to shorten the first part of the meeting or or just change the format so we go up to 1230 or something. So um, if there's any way to keep the kids downstairs a little longer or whatever, let's do that, please. So let's start with this thing. First of all, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. So that's interesting, isn't it? Have you ever thought much about that? And why did they say that? And they, they actually, the Bible gives you a little clue into why they said that. Because it says, Lord teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And I wonder, does everyone know that several of the disciples of Jesus were disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus? It, uh, it really is very similar if you're, uh, we have a few sports fans in our church. It's one of my greatest sorrows in life that we don't have more. <laughs> I think sports are one of the most helpful things in life to teach you about everything about God. Um, I think everybody should know some things about, it, especially team sports, not individual sports. Uh, Team sports have lots of lessons that can teach us about how to do family and community better. Uh, Right, Robbie, football player that you were? Uh, Team sports uh, really have a lot of good. So at least Peter and Andrew, James and John, were disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus. And it's very much not like they switched teams. It's more like they got called up to the major leagues. So we have in Dayton, we have a little baseball team called the Dayton Dragons. And I don't know a lot about minor league baseball except to know that every major league team has three or so levels of minor league teams underneath them. And... uh the minor leagues are to develop players to be brought up to the team that it really counts. They could care less if the team does well in the minor leagues. It's all about developing the talent. That's what the minor leagues are for. And so uh, you, I often hear people from Dayton talk about various major league players that uh, that, that started in Dayton. They used to play for the Dayton Dragons, and then they graduate to the Cincinnati Reds, and then when they get, start to get really good, they get traded. <laughs> because the Cincinnati Reds can't afford to keep them. Uh, so, several of the disciples were actually, that's kind of what happened. They were disciples of John the Baptist, and they became disciples of Jesus. And again, it's much. It's not so much like they were members of the Cleveland Browns and they were traded to the Cincinnati Bengals. It's it's more like they were uh, they played for uh, the the Cincinnati Reds minor league affiliate, which the Dayton Dragons are actually on minor. Uh, I think it's the third triple triple A level of of the minor leagues. It's a couple steps down from the top level, I believe. So that, that's kind of important to know. So they actually say, Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray just like John the Baptist did. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us this, but there's two possible reasons that they do this. And, and which, which one it is is actually kind of important, so that's on my list of questions to ask when we get to heaven. <laughs> you know, I keep a list of all, all the things I want to ask God when we get to heaven. So one of them is, uh, are they doing that? Because uh, discipleship, although it's not very common in our day, every culture of the world in the five centuries or so before Christ Uh, use discipleship as the primary way of teaching. So if you like the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you know that they mispronounce Socrates as, they call him Socrates, right? And Socrates, uh, we have lots of his writings. Does anyone know that we have lots of Socrates' writings? But guess what? He never wrote anything. Plato and Aristotle were disciples of Socrates. And, uh, um, and Plato felt like uh, Socrates' ideas were important enough to be preserved. John Gray uh, mentioned in his teaching today uh, he didn't mention Alexander the Great, but I wasn't sure why, because he mentioned that the Greeks, uh, starting in Macedonia, conquered uh, what is now uh, uh, Turkey, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Israel, Egypt, all, and all the way across northern Africa, and they went as far east as India. And that was part of God's providence. The scripture actually says that Christ came in the fullness of time, and there were several important things that both the Greek empire and the Roman empire did and changed the world that were part of how God prepared the world for Christ. Several very important things. Uh, every, every young Indian lady like Golda knows that in, in, uh, just south of where Golda lives, there's a group of Christians that call themselves the Thomas Christians. What's the, uh, city down there? I always think that the Thomas Christians are from, Deanna, you probably know that. Um, it's, it's south of Bangalore and to the east where the headquarters of the evangelical, uh, Layman's Evangelical Fellowship comes from. Well, in any case, uh, the, you can go there. Uh, the McNamara's told me they did. And uh, you can see uh, various uh, monuments and things to Thomas. Because of what Alexander the Great had done, Thomas was able to take the gospel as far as Southeast India in, in his lifetime. The one who we uh, terribly refer to as, as Doubting Thomas. It's kind of it's kind of crazy that, uh, but what happens a lot of times is uh, someone whose life was very important gets uh, labeled for one incident or one event in their life, and that's how people think of them. Big mistake. Everyone knows if you know if you follow baseball, there's a, there was a great baseball player, one of the greatest hitters of his time, named Bill Buckner, who made an error in the World Series that uh, caused the Uh, Outcome of the World Series to change and he's remembered just for that play even though he was accomplished a great deal in his career and so uh, you know we think we call Thomas doubting Thomas because he, uh, he wasn't there in John chapter 20 which is also in Luke 24 but although their accounts don't overlap much Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room on Easter Sunday night and Luke and John both give us an account of that. Quite different account, that, and, and you need to shuffle them both together and get the whole picture. And that's why the Lord gave us all that. But if you remember, Thomas wasn't there. So when they're telling Thomas about this experience, he refuses to believe it. You know, uh, faith, uh, it's amazing how often as a pastor you encounter that all the time. Like you have a word for somebody and they're not willing to hear it. That happens a lot. And you're and sometimes your heart breaks for them because you know like that it's really, really important not only that they hear this, but that they hear it in the right spirit, receive it, and act upon it. And so uh Thomas, you remember, he says, unless I uh, put my hands into, or my, you know, feel his wounds and, uh, and touch his side and so forth, I, I won't believe. So we all remember him and even call him Doubting Thomas, which is very unfortunate because, because he became a very fruitful apostle. He was one of the 12, and he took the gospel and his team as far as uh, Southeast India, which is uh, in a day when there's no trains or automobiles or other mechanized transportation, it's quite amazing. Right, so I'm just, I'm just trying to get us far enough today to to jump into the Lord's prayer. So when one of the possible reasons that they asked Jesus teach us to pray as John taught his disciples is that in the discipleship world of of Palestine or Israel in uh, in the first century, that's how learning was done. And every young man or young woman grew up in the synagogue and they would, uh, they would memorize the entire five books of Moses by the age of 12. You often hear American modern preachers wrongly, very wrongly, say that Jesus picked common, ordinary, uneducated men. Nothing could be further from the truth. Most of the 12 disciples grew up in the northern part of Israel that had cities like Capernaum and Nazareth in it. Capernaum was on the uh, northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing town where Peter, Andrew, James, and John were from. And Nazareth was a little bit further north and east of that. And every kid who grew up in, in, in Galilee including most young ladies, would memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy by the time they were 12. However, the more promising students would memorize much more than that, sometimes even the whole Hebrew scriptures that we now call the Old Testament. And who, as you started to enter the age of 14 to 16, you were invited often by by someone to be their disciple. So Paul, who was from a city called Tarsus, which is far north of Israel and what is today Turkey, uh, Paul was a disciple of a man named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel speaks wisdom to the whole council in Acts chapter 5. And he was considered the leading Pharisee of his day. So Paul was like the top type student. He was the kind of guy who got, in our day and age, he would have got a scholarship to Harvard or Yale. That is sort of the equivalent. It, so Paul would have had all, probably all of, or at least close to all of what we call the Old Testament memorized by the time he was 12 years old. And so Jesus, you know, when he calls Peter and Andrew, James, and John, he wasn't calling uneducated men. He was calling men that are far more educated than the average American uh, student today. Far more educated. Make sure you understand that, because that's, actually very clear when paul talks about in galatians that he talks about he spent 14 years in arabia uh he doesn't tell us what he's doing but i i'll tell you what he was doing because of what happened in acts chapter 9 paul was rethinking his understanding of the of the entire old testament in light of the revelation of christ And he was re-understanding the Old Testament in a completely better, more correct way that God always intended. That he had been completely blind to before that, even though, because like we talked about with prayer, it's not a matter of quantity. People are always like, I need to read my Bible more. You need to have the tools to read your Bible more effectively. That's huge. And the primary thing I actually try to do, Amber Johnson remembers this, Amber Poon now, but when she first came, uh, frankly, she was quite damaged in many ways by her Christian upbringing. And it had become a very painful thing to her. And so I did a number of, of teachings that are still in our podcast, some of which are called Mountains in Matthew. I did three teachings in particular about Matthew and how Matthew uses what we call the Old Testament to reveal Christ to us. Did you ever notice that in most fundamentalists or evangelical churches, very little attention is given to the Old Testament when in the New Testament, do this study on your own, every New Testament chapter refers to the Old Testament by, quote, or by word picture, or by illusion, about an average of 12 or so times. The entire New Testament assumes that the people reading it know the Old Testament very well. And what we call the apostolic hermeneutic, there's an article back there in our foundational articles about that, is about how to see Christ in your Old Testament because he's there on every page. In Exodus 12, he is the Lamb of God, etc. And Moses is a foreshadowing of Christ, as David is a foreshadowing of Christ, and Christ is all through the Old Testament. Now, so. One possible reason the disciples say, Jesus, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples is just that's part of the religious culture. That was expected. A discipler is supposed to teach his disciples how to pray. Those six couples in our church that lead discipleship groups, one of the things you're supposed to be teaching people is how to pray. But I don't just mean spend more time in prayer. Learn how to to effectively communicate with God so that uh, he's hearing you and it's a two-way conversation. Not just throwing up your prayer list. Give me, give me, 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 me. Give me more, me, give me, bless me. Forgive me, bless me. Me, me. That's not what prayer is at all. You, we could increase the definition of prayer that we called the catalyst of visitation by saying visitation is an important stepping stone to releasing God's purpose and God wants to change the whole world. Part of the reason I'm interested in India is India is about 4% Christian. It's around 80% Hindu. And it's one of the most spiritually oppressed nations in in the history of the world. It's a very spiritual place, and the the current party that that rules in India is a very anti Christian, pro Hindu fundamentalist party, who hates Christianity. And Hinduism is a rapist. Hinduism is a robber. Hinduism is a harsh taskmaster that keeps a whole nation poor and oppressed and has effectively kept India poor and oppressed for 7,000 years. Which is just how long this planet's been had human beings on it. And I believe that by the end of this century, India will be 30 to 40% Christian. I believe there's going to be a massive revival, but the Christianity that exists in India today will not get it done. You cannot take new wine and put it in old wineskins. We can't do church the same way we've done church if we want to be a part of what God's doing. We have to reexamine everything about prayer, reading the word, what church is. Everything is, we, we have to forget what we thought we know, and we have to be taught of God. That's what we're trying to do in this series. So prayer is a catalyst to visitation. Visitation is the catalyst to the purposes of God, which are redemptive. God wants to change economies, families, culture. God wants to change what people eat and what they don't eat. Most Christians I've met in India don't eat pork or beef and so forth, and they use various wrong understandings of the Old Testament to, to do this, but it's actually just bringing the spirits from Hinduism into the church as, as they're converted. And then I'm, I'm going to leave us with one more thing. We're going we're gonna to start next week with our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. And we sang a song today that Deanna tells me we've sang like three times. And I'm having uh, some brain issues in my old age. So I didn't know what we'd. Say. I said, I asked Deanna, is this a new one? And she said, no, this is the third time we sang it. And I said, okay, sorry. Uh, but it was about the whole song was about the, the name of God. Names are su- super, super important. Do you know that God wants to change your name? Do you know when you're a parent, God wants you to seek God about what to name your children. Names are prophetic. Uh, Every parent should know what their kids' names mean and why they named that child this. And what it has to do with the purpose of God in their life. The most important job you have as a father, but I would say a parent in general, is to know uh, before that child ever comes out of his mother's womb the child's prophetic destiny and to name them accordingly. God's name is holy and names are full of meaning. Uh, the first a young man I ever was involved with coming to Christ was a uh, a guy who was already a Christian kind of quasi but not really walking right with God or whatever his name and uh Catherine of course remembers him dearly we're still friends with him on Facebook but his name was Uem uh U W E M so he gave all of us Americans a break and and uh, just went by Johnson but uh, I guess that was that was easier but uh when he got baptized in the spirit was so sensitive to the spirit so quickly uh, when he was just a few weeks baptized in the spirit we were out sharing the gospel once and we would ask people of course uh, what is your name and and this uh, particular person lied to him and he said you're lying that's not your name then he told him what his name was and he had it right Because he was very sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and Uhm related a story to me from the, uh, because I there there was some ancestors that he had a couple generations back that were uh, witch doctors and so forth, and when uh, Uhm's, I believe it was his grandfather, I can't remember his father, his grandfather, when he became a Christian. Uh, The witch doctor in the the village was very angry about this, of course. You know, there is no such thing as neutrality. That's like a modern humanistic idea that people think people are neutral. No no one is neutral. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. Jesus blasted the whole neutrality idea right out of the water. It's not compatible with Jesus thinking to think that people are neutral towards God. No one is neutral toward God. No one. And so when Uam's I guess it was his father or grandfather, I forget, became a Christian, one night he woke up in the middle of the night uh, with a large uh, snake that was, you know, about this thick and 10 or 12 feet long or longer, wrapping itself around him in his bed, And uh, he grabbed the snake by the head and began to say, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord. And eventually, by the grace of God, he was able to break the snake's head off. The witch doctor died in in the town that very moment. We Western people are brainwashed, brainwashed. Let me say this carefully and clearly so I don't overstate it. We are brainwashed in an anti-supernatural, natural-minded worldview that has affected us so deeply that our ideas about what the Gospels and the book of Acts actually are saying are completely far off. Because we are pseudo-scientific, pseudo-rationalistic, post-enlightenment worldview is incompatible with God and Christ. And God, to walk with God is to expect a life of miracles every day. And not to experience miracles every day is uh, to be in a place that's so subbiblical that we should be crying out to God, forgive us and save us and help us as we're going to discover as we go through the Lord's prayer over the next few weeks, he he has come to save you. If he had any desire to rub your fallenness or your shortcomings in your face, he would have killed you already. He has come to save you. He has come to set captives free. It is safe to tell him that you lust, steal, uh, blaspheme. You're lukewarm. You're apathetic about God. You're angry. You're full of unforgiveness, and uh, uh, you know that you have all kind of sexual sins. That uh, you you're a glutton. It, it's, it's okay to tell God all of that. He, he knows more than you, and if you're starting to know, it's because His grace goes, takes us through a process where we have to be, we begin to see our sin for what it is as a necessary stepping stone to getting delivered from it. So God like, it, God is not shocked that you look at pornography God is not shocked that you covet God is not shock, shocked that you're uh, pretty apathetic about your scripture reading times etc cetera, etc cetera. God is not shocked that you have less than charitable thoughts towards Pastor Greg and another and 100 more other people <laughs> he's not and and the a necessary stepping stone to getting free is to is to is to have your eyes opened up to just how bad it is as my pastor Ray Nethery always says cheer up you're much worse off than you think you know like the truth is none of us really get how messed up we are And a spiritually mature person is just a person who sees that better. Did you know that? A spiritually mature person is just a person that sees how perverted, prideful, selfishly ambitious, etc., etc., a whole list of sins, and has been honest before God and before the right people. You don't necessarily need to tell the whole world. But you do need to tell, not just someone that's easy to tell. Well, I'll tell Catherine because she'll go easy on me. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> you know, a lot a lot of guys have that those sorts of thoughts. Like I'm not gonna tell my pastor, <laughs> but you know, but I'll, I'll tell some of the brothers in the Four Bs Club because you know they'll. They've had a little too much bourbon anyway. They'll be, <laughs> they'll be okay with it. Uh, you need to tell someone who's in a position to do something about it. And I'll tell you how they're, in, you know, the, when the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into a pit. You can take somebody just as far in the Lord as you've allowed him to take you. And no further. Now, we'll end by saying we're going to look at our Father who art in heaven. He's not your buddy. You know, like the, that's a big movement in, in America today. God wants to be it, it, have a very loving, sweet, intimate relationship with you, but he's not just your chum. That, you know, like Logan's my chum. I invite him over and we mourn over the state of Michigan football together. <laughs> and uh, although I just mostly do it because I love Logan, I could care less how Michigan's doing it. I'm, I'm not particularly bummed out from any other point of view about the fact that Michigan football has been below its normal standards for the last 25 years or so. Uh, and if it ta- if it takes another 25 years to turn the thing around, I'll be okay with that, except for, I really do love Logan, and I'd like Michigan football to come out better, but not good enough to actually compete with Ohio State. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, hopefully you are putting all this together. I'm, I'm going to help us go through the Lord's Prayer, and we'll pick this same outline up next week, and we're going to look at every word like our father. So we're going to talk about subjects like America's radical individualism and how much that's hurting you. The most important ingredient in what's true spirituality is how well you do relationships. And how well you do relationships has nothing to do with what kind of family you were brought up in or how you did relationships before you became a Christian but God is first and foremost personable and his number one desire for you is to teach you how to do relationships better. And, in, and until you do, uh, you're, you'll always be a little bit at square one in the Christian life. Relationships are what it's all about. And, and we're, you know, fatherhood, every human being has fatherhood issues. We talk a lot about like, oh, this person has fatherhood issues. I don't, you know, like, I don't need to know. If someone says that, who the person is, if they're talking about a human being, I'm like, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Everyone has fatherhood issues. Everyone. Who are in heaven. Everyone diminishes God in their mind, in their heart as does the church today. And so all of us need help to see God for who he is. We all need that. So there's no shame in saying, I underevaluate God. i uh, give you some homework. Matthew 13. Read, the, read Matthew 13 this week. You'll see seven parables of the kingdom of God, because Jesus, we're going to talk about, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, so you need to know, start to know what the kingdom of God is because it hasn't anything to do with going to heaven. And you'll, one of the parables you'll see is wrongly called the parable of the sower and the seed because it's actually a parable about the soil. The sower is God or his ministers of his word. The seed is the word of the kingdom of God. And the soil is what the problem is in the parable. And three of the four people that Jesus gives us, here's exactly what their problem is, exactly. they underevaluate the seed, and that's because they underevaluate the who the sower is. So we'll start we'll start with the Lord's Prayer again next week, but we'll uh, have to either get me up here a little earlier or or get the kids coming back up a little later let's hurry and do uh, uh who's doing the communion meditation yeah if you could just if you could just skip the meditation and go right let's just do communion uh you are of course all invited to, if you can uh stay even though the meeting's been so long uh we're having a nice dinner afterwards and we would love to have you stay for dinner